The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. For those of you who have not yet heard Dr. Michael Haken, you're in for a treat. Uh, Dr. Michael Haken is a fellow of the Ezra Institute of Christ, uh, Contemporary Christianity. Um, I'll There's a book table downstairs. I'll say more about that a bit later on. But he's a professor of church history and biblical spirituality at Southern Baptist uh, Theological Seminary, uh, director of the Andrew Fuller Seminary, director of the Andrew Fuller Center. Sorry, the heat's got to me. Um, And he, he is the author of numerous books. I just picked a couple of the more recent ones, uh, one of them which has received extremely good press uh, and which I have on my reading list for the summer, uh, Rediscovering the Church Fathers, Who They Were and How They Shaped the Church. Uh, I know that uh, I'm not the only one who's interested in that here. It's also written on the empire of the Holy Spirit and one that sounds particularly intriguing, The Christian Lover. <coughs> The Sweetness of Love and Marriage in the Letters of Believers. So I won't uh, go through the long list of other books that Dr. Haken has written, but uh, I welcome him here and uh, look forward to hearing from him. I'm going to read from God's Word first of all. Uh, It's from Nahum, the prophet Nahum, chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. If you'd like to read along with me, I welcome you to do that. It's Nahum 1, verses 1 to 7. Shall we stand as we read God's word together? An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous God and avenging. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and of great might, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon fades. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth is laid waste before him, the world and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken asunder by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it's a privilege to begin this uh, series on the minor prophets, as they're sometimes called. Although, as you will see as I get into uh, looking at uh, the 12 minor prophets, I'll be referring to them uh, frequently as the Book of the Twelve. And uh, one of the things I will be arguing in the course of this introductory talk is that the book of the Minor Prophets really needs to be considered as a unit rather than as we are frequently uh, prone to consider it, namely as 12 individual books. 
but rather the way in which the canon was shaped leads us to believe that the 12 were brought together as a particular unit in that sense of a similar size to the book of Isaiah or the book of Jeremiah. What I'd like to do tonight is some very, very introductory remarks. Uh, Some of them, the first uh, three of them or so, have to do with prophecy in general. What is a prophet? Uh, It's not a familiar term, I think, in some ways uh, to us, even though we are uh, students of the Word of God. Invariably, it's the New Testament portion of God's Word that gets focused on, and so there is a certain degree of mystery about parts of the Old Testament. And so I want to say a little bit about the term prophet. And then the second half of really what I want to do is to kind of uh, plunge into the Book of the Twelve, the Minor Prophets, and uh, again make some comments regarding uh, the books as a unit, and then uh, three overall lessons, which I hope you'll be looking for and you'll derive from the other talks in this series. First of all, then, some general remarks regarding uh, prophecy and the term prophet. Our English term prophet uh, is usually the translation of one Hebrew word, although there are actually four Hebrew words in total that are used uh, for the idea of a prophet, but normally our English word translates one, the word nabi, N-A-B-I is a rough uh, uh, transliteration into English, uh, the English alphabetic script, uh, nabi. And uh, it comes in turn from a word in Hebrew that means the idea to bubble up or to bubble forth. It's a term that would be used to describe water coming out of a spring or out of a fountain. And from that basic meaning of the word, it had a derived meaning, the verb did, of to speak or to utter. And you can see how this is very, very significant for the understanding of the prophet. The prophet is one who is speaking, and speaking, as we will see, God's word. And this is absolutely vital uh, to the religion of the Old Testament. If the religion of the Old Testament is anything, it is speech. It is divine revelation. We as Christians proclaim that not only has God created the heavens and the earth, which reflect his glory, speak of certain of his attributes, but we also proclaim that God has spoken, that there is a record of divine speech. And uh, the prophet was one who was given the words of God to speak. You see this a number of places in the, uh, the minor prophets or the book of the Twelve. And I'm going to have you jumping back and forth in the Minor Prophets, and so our first uh, text is right at the beginning, the first section of the Book of the Twelve, which is Hosea, and Hosea, and verse 1, and verse 2. Well, we, we can actually go back to verse 1 of Hosea 1.1. 1, 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord, Lord first spoke through Hosea, 
The Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the Lord commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. And uh, right from the very beginning of this book then, the book of the Twelve, what we call the Minor Prophets, there is the recognition that the words we're about to read are divine speech. This is God speaking through Hosea. Or if you want to jump over to a second passage, uh, the book of Amos. Uh, Hosea, Joel, and then Amos. Amos is the oldest chronologically of all the so-called minor prophets, but it has always been placed in either the second or third spot in the listing of the, uh, the, uh, the order of the minor prophets. And in Amos chapter 3, verse 7, <clears throat> Amos 3 and verse 7, the Lord God does nothing without revealing a secret to his servants, the prophets. The, Lord, the lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? A passage that speaks, obviously, of that inner sense of compulsion that once a, the word of God came to the prophet, he had to speak that word, that sense of of being bound at, by the Spirit, as it were, or being constrained by the Spirit of God. And uh, in a real sense, all of Scripture is prophetic then. And in fact, you find this. We won't take you to these verses, but you find verses that speak of the patriarchs of Abraham and uh, even further back, Enoch, as being prophets. And so there is a real sense in which every portion of God's Word is prophetic because it is written by one to whom divine words were given. Yes, clothed in the peculiarities and particularities of the various individuals who wrote these words. And so, for instance, one can read uh, Ezekiel, the prophecy of Ezekiel, very, very different figure in terms of his temperament and his personality than Jeremiah. There is enough material there that you can actually do a personality study. Very, very different figures that God uses, and that personality comes through in the, the use of language. But having admitted that and recognized that, uh, all of Scripture then is also prophetic speech, and each of the writers of Scripture, in a sense then, is a prophet. We obviously are using it in a more restricted sense. And so while the first point, major point is that the speech of these prophets is a divine speech, this is God's word, the second point is that the, the line of the prophets particularly begins with Moses. And this is very important for the book of the Twelve. To give you some idea of the importance of Moses, go back into the book of Exodus, and there are uh, two passages, sorry, book, in the book of Deuteronomy, there's two passages in the first five books of, of the Scripture, the books of Moses that I want to read. And uh, the first one is found in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 18. And here in Deuteronomy 18, Moses is giving a foretelling of something that would come to pass. I should mention that um, only 
about 7% of what we call the prophetic material is foretelling. That is speaking about the future. The rest of it, which means the bulk of it, over 90% of the material that we describe as the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and then the book of the Twelve, over 90% of that is forth-telling. It's God speaking his word to the present day. It's not God predicting the future. And uh, I think that's one of the challenges for us, that when we think of prophecy, we think, oh yes, prediction and predictive material. Um, The bulk of it is not, but here is Moses giving a prediction. Um, Deuteronomy 18 and verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Now this passage ultimately uh, is picked up in the New Testament. It ultimately has has reference, obviously, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, the prophet, like unto Moses, is none other than our great prophet, the Lord Jesus. But it gives you some idea of how important Moses is, that Moses becomes the touchstone. It is a prophet like unto Moses, a prophet after the order, as it were, of Moses, who is going to come and be the mouthpiece for God in a definitive way. The other thing to note about this this passage is that the emphasis on the prophet leading the people to devotion to God. One of the ways in which you will be able to determine whether or not a prophet is true is does he lead you to worship other gods? Or does he lead you back to the God who revealed himself at Mount Sinai in the covenant, who revealed himself definitively through Moses? Now the importance of this passage cannot be overstressed for us as New Covenant believers, but also for the book of the Twelve. Because as you go through the minor prophets, or the book of the Twelve, you are brought back again and again to the covenant that God established at Mount Sinai. You go, you're brought back again and again to the blessings and the curses. It's almost as if the prophets are men who are revivalists, calling the people of God back again and again to the covenant their forebears made with God at Mount Sinai. The idea that the prophets are innovative thinkers, which is a buzzword today. They are creative personalities. You know those words, as soon as you hear them, you 
have a kind of a warm feeling, you know, innovative, creative. Oh, to be in such a category of thinkers. Uh, The prophets would have been horrified to find themselves ever given such titles or epithets. They didn't see themselves that way. They saw themselves as men whom God had placed in the midst of generations who were wandering away from the God who had covenanted with his people at Mount Sinai. They were bringing the people back to that covenant. Two examples. The last book of the Book of the Twelve, or the last section of the Book of the Twelve, is Malachi. Malachi chapter 4 and verse 4. Malachi 4.4. Right at at the end of the the whole book of the Twelve, of the Minor Prophets, we read these words, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Remember Moses. Remember the law. Go back to that period of time. Reaffirm your commitment to the covenant. Or... The first book of the book of the Twelve, Hosea, Hosea chapter 4. God has a number of words to speak to Hosea, to his generation. And uh, they are words that speak directly about the law. Hosea 4, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord is a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love, no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. And therefore the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish, and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. You'll notice how uh, uh, Hosea doesn't simply go back and say, well, you know, there's been the breaking of the 7th and the 6th and the 8th and the ninth commandments, but he is, that's what he's doing. He's going back to the Ten Commandments and he's listing them, not in exact order, interestingly enough, but he's saying these things you are doing but you covenanted at Mount Sinai in the person of your parents, in the person of your forebears, not to do these things. You claim to be God's people, but you're breaking the covenant. And so the minor prophets then do not see themselves as innovators. They see themselves as men returning God, returning the people of God back to the covenant as it was given by the first great prophet Moses. It's very interesting that the, there is in the revelation of God in the covenant a description of God that is very important to the book of the Twelve. The description is found in Ezekiel, Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. And you may turn to that. And uh, I'll, show it to, I'll show you where this crops up as we move through the minor prophets. It's one of these texts in Scripture that you do well to memorize because it is so fundamental to the revelation of God. We are New Covenant men and women, but this revelation has not been abrogated 
Rather, it has been now fulfilled fully in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. In him we see that the Lord, the Lord is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. In the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, we see in the flesh, in the face of Christ, this self-description that God gives of himself in the Old Covenant. Keep that in mind. And it will further support the idea, the second major point, that the minor prophets are always calling God's people back to the covenant made at Sinai because this description comes up again and again and again. One final general point about the prophets. They may not have seen themselves as creative innovators, but they were certainly nonconformists which our culture claims to admire, with the emphasis on the word claims. I think the reality is quite different. In our rebellion, we are all too conformist. But these are the true nonconformists. And it's critical to note that the Spirit of God enabled these men frequently to stand against the drift of their culture to stand against the stream of the way history was running in their day, to stand against the tide. Micah, Micah chapter 3. I've got two long passages, well, about seven verses each, that bring this out, I think, very well. Micah 3 and verse 5. There were prophets whose names we don't know, who are not among the twelve, who are false religionists. False religion that masquerades as truth has been a problem since the get-go. It's a problem in our day. It was a problem in their day. Thus says the Lord, Micah 3.5, Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money, yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. 
And what you sense there is significant numbers of religious leaders, priests and prophets, were quite willing to go along with the stream of the culture. In fact, they were quite willing to use religion as a means of financial aggrandizement. Our world is filled with that in North America. But here Micah knows himself to be filled with the Spirit, and he is not afraid because of that to speak about justice and sin. Or turn over to the book of Amos. Going back a couple of books, Amos chapter 7 and verse 10. Sometimes the false prophets are named. It is so here. Amos 7 verse 10. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah, and eat bread there, and prophesy there. But never again a prophesy of Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and is the temple of the kingdom. This is obviously the situation with the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and the northern kingdom having a temple at Bethel in the southern kingdom, obviously, at Zion or Jerusalem. And then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor a prophet some, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel, do not preach against the house of Israel. Thus, therefore, thus says the Lord, Your wife shall be a prostitute in the city. And your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword, and your land will be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land, and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. And as Amos spoke, so it came to pass when Assyria came into the land and did all that Amos predicted it would. And so the prophets then are cultural nonconformists. They are countercultural heralds, true countercultural heralds. So three points then about the prophets in general. One is the prophet's speech is divine speech. To, to be a prophet was to be given divine words. And when we read the prophets, we're reading divine speech. Secondly, these uh, 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 prophets are conservative figures in the sense that they are calling God's people back again and again to the covenant given to the great prophet in the, old, in the old covenant, namely Moses, through whom God gave his law and identity to Israel. And then thirdly, these men were given power by the Spirit of God who gave them the words to stand against the stream of their culture. Now, how to understand the book of the Twelve? And so turning now to the really the second major part of what I want to look at tonight. One popular way of dividing the prophets is the major prophets and the minor prophets. And I've been doing a bit of that myself, and it's not always easy to how to classify them in one sense, to vary your terms. And so we have the major prophets who 
we would identify as Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then Daniel, although this is not, by the way, the way the, the Hebrew Bible would identify them. Daniel will be in with the writings. And you can see what the major prophets there are. They're major because they're big. <laughs> it's not because their message is more important. In fact, it's very interesting to recognize that our Lord, the one scripture text that was most on his mind, if we have the quotes to go by in that final week of his life and ministry prior to the cross and resurrection was Zechariah. He quotes most frequently or alludes most frequently to Zechariah. Zechariah is filling his mind, as it were. And so it's not because the major prophets have a big message and the minor prophets have a small message, but it's a term major, they're big. And minor, they appear to obviously to be small. And uh, so you have the major prophets, the three that I've mentioned, and they're often included among them is Daniel, and then the minor prophets. And the order, the order is important. The order is not willy-nilly, you know. Somebody came along, oh, well, we'll have this one here, and well, I like this one next because it's got an A begins of it, and well, I've always disliked this one. I'll put this one further down the line. And No, no, it's not a willy-nilly arrangement. There is a canonical order which is significant for interpretation. My argument is going to run like this, that the book of the Twelve, in its final form, in the, 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 the Spirit's, uh, leading those who brought that book together in its final form as 12 individual sections, or the 12 minor prophets, led whomever to place it in a distinct order. Because that order is always the same. The only time it varies a little bit is in the, in the Septuagint, which is not inspired. It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And uh, it's Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. And uh, let, me, let me set you a task. If you're going to take in the uh, seven following weeks, and I encourage you to do so, uh, memorize the Minor Prophets. So when we are, the very speakers are in one of them, you know where, you know where to find them. And... Uh, I won't, take, I won't embarrass anybody, but I suspect that probably some of you may not be able to do that. And uh, So, memorize the order of the minor prophets and fix it firmly in your mind so you know where they are. That order is important. Now, in the um, 19th century, a number of scholars, initially liberal scholars, began to argue that the whole canonical order, the way the books have come down to us, is really not that important. What we've got to do is we've got to create a chronological order to figure out what the books are talking about, which I think, as a historian, makes a lot of sense. And so I have a certain degree of sympathy for that approach. The only problem is that to create such a timeline, invariably you have to go outside the books themselves Create the timeline. You'll pull a verse out here, a verse out here to kind of put in your timeline. And then once you've got your timeline, then we go back to the books and fit them in. And then we can interpret them. Now, it all sounds very, very nice, and it'll give us a rich, layered understanding of the books. We know the historical, political, uh, social context, which I'm all in favor of as a historian what we might describe as doing deep history. 
where you're not just simply looking at one issue, but a layer of issues. And I'm all in favor of that. The only problem is that some of the the, the, the book of the Twelve, some of the, the sections of it, some of the books there, have no historical clues. Hosea was brilliant, was it not? When you begin Hosea, if you go back to Hosea 1.1, the word of the Lord came, it came to Hosea, the son of Barry. Usually they're identified who their fathers are. And that doesn't always help us much, though, because who's Barry? But... This, this word came in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, Judah, and kings of Judah, and then Jeroboam, son of Joash, when he was king of Israel. In other words, we know that he overlaps with Isaiah. It's 8th century, 7th century B.C. It's great. But then what do you do with, uh, for example, Obadiah? And turn to Obadiah. And it begins this way, the vision of Obadiah, and then you're into it. There are, now there are some markers in there. It's quite clear that he's talking about um, Edom and the Edomites and God's judgment on the Edomites. But is this 100 years before that? Is it at the time of that judgment? Is it 200 years before that? It's not easy to date it. And so the, the challenge then for the chronological, the kind of chronological division, which I'm going to talk a little bit about in terms of how you would divide it chronologically, is some of the books don't give us historical dates and pointers, so it's not clear where to fit them. And so you can read 10 Old Testament scholars and, you'll, and who follow this kind of way of, of, of understanding the minor prophets, and you'll get 10 chronologies. Now, over the years, interestingly enough, uh, this began with liberals, and the liberals had an agenda, which was to undermine the confidence in the Word of God. That's ultimately what it spells out. I find it very interesting. I went onto four, three or four websites just uh, looking at how they were uh, uh, dividing up the minor prophets, conservative evangelical websites, and all of them said, we're going to follow a chronological division. And I thought, isn't that interesting? What, what the liberals were doing 200 years ago, now some evangelicals are thinking might be helpful, and they're doing it, but it's, it's, it, 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 I, as I'm going to argue it impoverishes our understanding of this portion of God's Word. What is amazing is that as you look at the books, the order they're placed in, the links that are there, it's quite clear to anybody reading through the book of the Twelve that Amos precedes Hosea chronologically. There are chronological data in here. Amos is the oldest prophet. He was never, ever placed first. He was always either placed second or third. What that means is that whoever made that arrangement was convinced that to understand Amos, you first had to read Hosea and Joel. And you had to read Amos in the light of Hosea and Joel. Or look at the relationship between Amos and Obadiah. Amos always comes before Obadiah. 
By the way, when I'm talking like this, I'm talking not simply about our English Bibles, but I'm talking about the, the, the Jewish uh, Old Testament, the Masoretic text as well. Obadiah always comes after Amos. Amos has a number of little interesting things in, in its book that relate to Obadiah. Amos 1.11, if you turn there. Amos 1 and verse 11. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because he pursued his brother with a sword and cast off all pity, and his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. So I will send a fire upon Teman, and it shall devour the strongholds of Botsra. And those are places among in the land of Edom, the Edomites obviously being descended from Esau. Now you go to Obadiah. Go to Obadiah, verse 10. Why is God going to judge Obadiah? Obadiah 10. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. Obadiah 10 is almost identical to Amos 1 and verse 11. And they kind of complement each other. And it's quite clear that Obadiah is actually picking up exactly what Amos is saying in verse 10, verse 11 of chapter 1. Or look at Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. Amos 9, 11 and 12. This is a very important prophecy. This is the prophecy and we won't, we won't go into this. This is the prophecy that James, the half-brother of our Lord, cites at the Council of Jerusalem about the reason why the gospel should go out to the Gentiles. So I'll let you think about that. But it's, here we read this. In that day, Amos 9:11, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Well, when you read through Obadiah, what, tell, what Obadiah tells you is how the Lord is exactly going to do those two verses. Obadiah is a commentary on Amos 9, 11, and 12. Especially, look at Obadiah 21. Notice Amos 9, 12 says, the, uh, God is going to raise up the booth of David. They will possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name. Then Obadiah 21, Savior shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Edom, one day, will be the Lord's. And Obadiah is a commentary on Amos 9, 11, and 12. No wonder it was always placed directly after it. The fact that Obadiah doesn't have a date in it that helps us date it doesn't hurt our ability to interpret it in the slightest because it's placed right after Amos and Amos gives us clues on how to read Obadiah. Or, after Obadiah, you get Jonah. 
Everybody thinks, well, we know Jonah's to be read, don't we? It's probably one of the most familiar books of the Old Testament. But you'll notice Jonah is, when if you read through these books at one sitting, and maybe I should encourage you to do that as well, in addition to memorizing all the, uh, the titles in order, maybe take some time this week to read through the whole of the book of the Twelve, the Minor Prophets, from Hosea 1.1 to Malachi 4. What will strike you when you hit Jonah, Micah, and Nahum is the emphasis on Assyria. Now, Assyria has only been mentioned really once before in the Minor Prophets in Hosea. Uh, Joel, Amos, and Obadiah don't mention Assyria really at all. Jonah's filled with it, right? And you know the story, and uh, we look forward to uh, uh, Brother Ligon Duncan coming and opening up the Word of God on this, on this particular book. But uh, the story of how Jonah was called to preach repentance to Nineveh, and he was reluctant to do so because of the nature of Assyria, and eventually he goes, and there's repentance. And notice what Jonah says in Jonah chapter 4 and 1 and 2. When Nineveh repented, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Now, where have you seen that before? Exodus 34, right? That's what we read in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, when God described himself. Here, Jonah takes God's self-description. He knows this is what God is like. That's why he didn't want the the Assyrians to, to repent. It's an amazing self-description. God is loving and kind, not only to his people with whom he is in covenant, but to the nations. Then we go over to Micah. And Micah mentions Assyria, but Assyria now seems to be going back to our warlike ways. Micah 5, and verses 1 to 6. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men, they shall shepherd the land of Assyria with a sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. This doesn't seem like the Assyria of Jonah. Assyria's return to our warlike ways. So much so that when you get to Nahum, Nahum also is very interested in Assyria. But now it's judgment. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. Nahum 1-2. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath 
for his enemies. And notice chapter 3, verse 19 and 18. Let me go to 18. Chapter 3, 18 and 19. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? To understand Jonah, you need to put it in the context of Nahum and Micah. These books have been placed together to give a composite message. Who is the God who deals with Assyria? He's the God who's made covenant with Israel. He is a God of enormous mercy and long-suffering and kind and gracious. But there is a moment in time when there, are, there is a limit to God's mercy and kindness. We don't like to think about that, do we? But there is coming a day, which is described in Revelation, when the offer of salvation will no longer be offered. There are some in our day, some evangelicals, who fool themselves in thinking that there might be another opportunity after death. A kind of post-mortem opportunity. Surely good people who have been good in their lives will get such an opportunity. But all the Scripture speaks the other way. Here the Old Testament, on the, on the scene of history, God's offer of mercy and kindness to the Assyrians who showed no mercy and kindness to their enemies. And there is repentance. But there's more to the story because Assyria ends up being destroyed suddenly. And the Assyrians almost completely, totally disappearing as a people group. And Nahum tells us that latter part of the story. My point is this, that to understand the minor prophets, you read them together. There are links back and forth. We don't just take one book out and read it by itself. They, they are read together. And in this sense, then, we have in the book of the Twelve as large a body of prophetic literature as Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. Well, finally, three overall lessons uh, from the book of the Twelve. First of all, history is providentially ordered, all of it. When we begin the book of Hosea, Assyria is ruling the Middle East. If you ever want to get a great picture of what Assyria was like, now it involves a trip to Britain, so, uh, but uh, with that little caveat, you need to go to Britain, go to London, and um, the British Museum. And there is a huge gallery of Assyrian friezes, F R I E Z E, friezes, the wall sculptures, in which the Assyrian king Sennacherib recounted a variety of his military battles and campaigns. A very interesting kind of art deco for the walls, because usually it depicted the Assyrian troops marching up to a city, besieging it with towers and ladders and spears, bows and arrows. Then they take the city and they decapitate the leaders in the city and you'll have piles of heads depicted. They crucified some of the leaders of the opposition 
The Romans would later get crucifixion from the Assyrians. And then the most horrific of things, I've got no idea how you would do this. I don't really want to know how you would do this. They would flay alive some of the key leaders, which means they would take a knife and scrape off their skin in a whole piece, as whole as they could, and then they take those skins back to Nineveh and stick them on the outside walls of the city. I mean, this is all propaganda, you know. This is what we do to you if you dare stand in front of us. A wicked, wicked people. Assyria is ruling the Middle East at the beginning of the book of the Twelve. And as you go through the book, there is a, some chronological order, but as you go through the book, Assyria falls and Babylon replaces her. Habakkuk is deeply bothered by that. Man, Assyria was bad. But the Chaldeans and the Babylonians, oh, they're, they're just as, they're worse. And then uh, you've got, finally, the Babylonians go, and by the time you get to uh, uh, Haggai and uh, Zechariah and Malachi, the Persians are in control. You've got about five, six hundred years of Middle Eastern history. And then the northern kingdom, it's, it's basically its fall. And then the ups and downs of the southern kingdom, Judah. And all of this is sketched out, the exile, the restoration after the exile. And the, the prophets, the minor prophets, the twelve, are telling us all of history, all of it is under the control of the sovereign God who made covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai. Not just Israel's history. In fact, after going through this material for today, I've come to a realization, a, a term that I'd often heard when I was in seminary, you know, sacred history uh, or salvation history and secular history, that's all mumbo-jumbo, I think. All of history is under his control, all of it. And he's got purposes in all of it. He's got purposes for his people. He has covenanted with them. He expects them to live in accord with his covenant. But he's got purposes for the nations. And when they refuse to live according to the laws that are written into the framework of conscience and into providence, he will judge them. There's not simply one law of justice for his people, one for the nations. He will judge the nations. It is, it is deeply encouraging. We, we live in a world that even the, the wisest and those who think they're in control in our world admit in their scariest moments, who knows how all this economic crisis is going to go down? And the powder keg that is the Middle East etc., etc. But God's in control. He is in absolute control. And it will accomplish His purposes. And He has providentially ordered all of it. And we rest in that. We take great confidence in that. And that gives the people of God boldness. No wonder a Micah and an Amos could stand before the authorities and speak the Word of God without an army behind Him or any armed retinue by himself and speak to power brokers in this world God's word. Because God's in control, not them. Secondly, the, the book of the Twelve gives us rich examples of prayerful obedience. Jonah in the belly of the great fish, chapter 2, 
That's a tremendous prayer. Why is that prayer there? To teach you how to pray. Or Habakkuk in chapter 3. In fact, Habakkuk 3.1 is called a prayer of Habakkuk. When you find yourself looking at the world scene and Habakkuk looked out at the Assyrians and the way it appeared they were going unpunished and God was going to raise up the Babylonians to punish them. And then he realized the Babylonians, they're just as bad as the Assyrians. Like the whole, the whole world's a mess. And look at your people. How do you, how do you deal with that? You pray. You pray like Habakkuk. Habakkuk 3. Or look at Hosea. At the end of Hosea, it's almost like a, um, a kind of a catchphrase for all of the book of the twelve. Hosea 14.9. God has been telling Israel, you know, you've been wandering away. He's, he's used the example of the prophet. It's, a, it's an amazing story, Hosea, that he, he encourages the prophet to go and marry a prostitute. One of the great commentators in my tradition, Baptist tradition, uh, John Gill, when he hit this, he said, there's no way. He actually went and married a prostitute. I, it just didn't really happen. It, it was just kind of a parable. Well, I love John Gill, but I think he's wrong. I, I think God had Hosea go and marry a woman and become a prostitute because he wanted a vivid example of this is, this is Israel. When you leave your husband, your maker, return, Hosea 14, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. We will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. And then this is God. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger is turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His roots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive, and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Oh, Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. With, from me comes your fruit. And then this prayer. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. And that's a great prayer for our day. And so the the, uh, the, the, the twelve give us models of prayerful obedience. And then finally, the twelve reveal to us the great God who filled their hearts and minds with his words. These are theocentric books. They're God-centered books. Who is this God? Well, he's the God who revealed himself to Moses. Look at these words in Micah 7. And again, the question is, where have you heard these words before? Micah 7, 18 to 20. What a tremendous way to finish this section of the book of the 12. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance, inheritance 
He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depth of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you've sworn to our fathers from the days of old. This, people of God, is your God. But this also is your God. Right after it, Nahum chapter 1. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm. And the clouds are the dust of his feet. Verse 7. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. And the book of the twelve give us a richly layered, deeply rounded picture of God. No one portion of it can one say, ah, this is the final word uh, in these por- this portion of God's word about God. We need all of it. And God displays himself as a merciful God, slow to anger, extending forgiveness and mercy to his people and to the nations, but also a God of holiness and righteousness. And one day there will be judgment. So I trust this has helped a little in thinking about the prophets and this portion of God's word in particular. Uh, In the weeks to come, we... Uh, Trust the Lord will enable his uh, servants to open portions of this word. As was mentioned earlier, we're obviously not looking at all of it, uh, but we will look at seven portions of the book of the Twelve. Next week, uh, Dr. David Barker, who is the academic vice president of Heritage uh, Seminary in Cambridge, will come, uh, an Old Testament professor by training, uh, and come and open up uh, the book of Joel, particularly Joel chapter 2 and that very famous prophecy that is fulfilled ultimately on the day of Pentecost. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we bless you for this opportunity to gather like this. Thank you for being here with us. And we do pray that your word would burn in our hearts, even as it did in the hearts of the prophets who spoke these words so long ago. Teach us from your word in the weeks to come. Teach us about yourself and your ways, your purposes for your church and for the nations, and bring glory to your Son, our Lord Christ, who is spoken of in so many of these texts. Now be with us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.